this is the hindu on books a weekly podcast from india's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature hello and welcome to the hindus on books podcast my name is jayant shriram I'm your host for this episode and I'm in conversation today with Krish Ashok, author of the fascinating new book Masala Lab: The Science of Indian Cooking. In Ashok's words, the book attempts to bring an engineering approach to Indian cooking, breaking down the physics and chemistry of some of its key processes and adopting an algorithmic approach to the combination of its vast array of ingredients. That may sound daunting at the outset and you may ask Why do we need a scientific approach to cooking? Isn't it all supposed to be skill and craft handed down over generations and innate feel? That is where Masala Lab attempts to change your perception. Because you can either spend years in the kitchen trying to master that innate feel, as all experienced cooks in our families did, or you can follow recipe books that can give you a method but not even come close to conveying the craft. If you fall somewhere in between these two approaches, then Krish Ashok has a lot of lessons for you and we're happy to have him share some of his thoughts about food and cooking here with us on the podcast today Krish Ashok thank you for joining the Hindus on Books podcast today thank you for making time for us absolute pleasure right so um, great book by the way i find it uh, i found it extremely fascinating so congratulations firstly and um, you know the reason i found it fascinating is because um, you know i i like i like to cook um, i don't do it often enough mostly because it uh, it takes me a lot of time and in the time that i spend cooking i spend an inordinate amount of time stressing about uh, the various proportions that i should be using uh, from oil to uh, spices to you know how how long i should keep something on high flame to low flame that takes up a lot of my time and while i was reading the book it kind of occurred to me that i i am perhaps the sort of perfect intended audience profile for your book exactly um do you, do you agree what um so what what's the who, who is this book written for basically actually quite interesting the the target audience for this book uh, kept changing you know as i was writing the book so my natural uh, original my natural style of writing was was originally targeted at you know science nerds and so on right somebody who, mm-hmm. so we we were pretty certain that we wanted to write a science book and not a cooking book um and target a popular science reader right cooking just being the uh, the vehicle for explaining science if you will so uh, so you know a lot of in jokes and a lot of science fiction references was how it was first written um and then you know as as we kept editing it you know my editor kept saying that look you know it looks like there may perhaps be an audience of people uh, for whom cooking seems complicated um it seems like a stressful chore um and they're all picking up cooking just during the pandemic and starting to take it seriously and they don't have the the muscle memory and the natural knack for it that our you know our parents and our you know grandparents might have had our grandmothers specifically might have had um and so and and again the the internet is filled with a lot of you know conflicting information um and sometimes the recipes are too complicated uh, and they don't often give you the exact same results and so on so is there a way to to target that audience right um, and so i think you know that's how we sort of simplified the whole thing and uh, made it a less indulgent more focused book on absolute cooking basics and just the how do i give you that practical you know heuristics 
of you know when is rice done you know when is wheat done you know you don't have to sweat uh, you know when are vegetables done um, and how to make sort of like the ideal biryani and so on right so the idea is uh, so we targeted a mass audience after i wrote about two or three chapters and then i went back and rewrote it um so that we said no you know what let's not let's let's not talk only to nerds let's talk to a wider audience let's simplify it down to first principles uh no no formulae no you know uh equations and stuff just let's let's keep it just the basics so that's how you know so it started out being targeted nerds but now it's it, it you know it ended up being uh, popular amongst a, a pretty wide sec- uh, section of the population right so uh, a lot of like interesting things in that answer itself that i'll pick up on for later but i think i would it would be remiss of me if i didn't first ask you about um your journey with food which is also a way of asking you how long this book has basically been growing um so i think the two are interconnected um tell us a little bit about that i uh, i learned to cook pretty early um it, this was something that i i was a teenager and essentially at about the time when my mother felt that she could trust me in a kitchen without blowing it up is when i was uh, taught to cook because you know she she was also working and she occasionally would have to travel and so clearly uh, she felt that as the elder son i could perhaps you know make a basic rasam you know make rice if necessary for uh, for the people in the house uh, but it was only when i went uh, abroad um in uh, 1999 or 2000 uh, the first time i went abroad as part of my job i work in it and i still do uh that was when i started taking this seriously and i started talking to a lot of my grand aunts and a lot of relatives uh, a lot of people who i considered to be great cooks and said look i'm going to collect all your recipes uh, right i mean this was obviously pre google you know era right so you still had to go collect recipes and so on so i i did collect a lot of these recipes and in some sense it struck me back then in the year 2000 that people who were great cooks didn't think in terms of recipes they thought in terms of heuristics they thought in terms of algorithms they 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 didn't necessarily know whether it was a quarter teaspoon or one teaspoon they said you add till it smells right or you cook till it looks right and so they they really thought in terms of those kinds of milestones and a lot of their cooking was actually felt to be to be a lot more uh, of a craft in the sense of you know there there's ways in which you can if you can document that and for some reason recipes didn't document that craft right uh, and so in some sense you know so that's when the 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 idea for the book if you if you really have to think about it goes back almost two decades ago but then you know i've i've been cooking you know every day since then and i uh, i've as someone who's documented like literally everything that i cook every day for the last 20 years i know what i cooked every day um, and i kind of roughly know what i tried what worked what did not work and so obviously a lot of the research for the book itself is is i had a ton of data already so i kind of knew that 80% hydration or 90% hydration for wheat will work and, and and those kinds of things right so that was one um, and then obviously i think you know i i i never uh, re- never really thought about writing this down as a food science book at all uh because my interests were not in writing about this my you know i wanted to write about you know science fiction and humor and, you know my entire writing you know uh, for for the last decade or so has always been on either and those kinds of you know humor and satire and those kinds of things uh, right. and even my first proposal to my publisher was let me write some chennai centric sort of cyberpunk science fiction right so that was my first proposal uh, they said that's great but there's no audience for it so you know we like your cooking proposal so i just gave it a second they said give me a non fiction proposal as well so i said okay fine you know what if there's one thing i can write about uh, pretty confidently uh, and without having a phd it's about food science and so that that's how it was born and i think you know i i should have written it about 5 years ago but i think you know uh, the the pandemic is what sort of pushed the whole thing and penguin said get it done right this is the right time and so that's how this whole thing was born right yeah so um you kind of lay out a sort of a mission statement of sorts in the introduction and you know i 
you pick up a few lines there which is you know one you say that you want to bring in a kind of an engineering approach to yeah. uh, to cooking yeah. um, but you know uh, you do point out that so indian cooking it involves a lot of skill etc but it's not um, it's not easily codifiable in yes. many instances you know you you speak about how many great cooks they just kind of say okay it's we just put we just put spices through instinct and this yes. is the kind of skill that's handed yes. down uh, over generations so also the other thing that you point out is that i mean these are things that if you follow that approach you'd have to sort of go yeah. cook for like 10 years to exactly. kind of find exactly. that right so um you know is is this a kind of i mean when you do, do you find this uh, particular to indian cooking do you think that other forms of cooking ha- are you know it's it's easier to kind of codify or they have been codified better yes um i would actually extend this a bit further and say that this this is this is a phenomenon that's pretty uh common to many aspects uh, of mm-hmm. things uh, culture in the subcontinent uh and i i i take the example of music as well uh music is better codified and better taught um mm-hmm. in the west than it is here um music teaching here classical music teaching here is very exclusionary and it's uh, it doesn't scale right so uh for starters not enough people take it up and uh, most people give up before they get to any kind of level uh but i think you know uh western music is is a lot more open in terms of you know at the entry funnel you know, a lot more people get into it uh not all of them become western classical musicians but they can sort of veer off into pop and they can veer off into many other styles of music uh, and so on but the the pedagogical style of western music is is significantly superior and i say that as someone who's who spent 25 years learning classical music uh, from one of the you know one of the your know, best violinists uh, mm. uh, india has produced right? so i i was a student of tn krishnan who recently passed away right um I, I, and and i can tell you he he may be a fantastic teacher but he could teach about three or four people uh, in his entire life right <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a practical thing for most people but but a school kid can enroll uh and there's a there's a grade 0 grade 1 grade 2 and you can just simply just teach yourself uh, a lot of that stuff and i think that's similar to uh what we do with cooking as well right uh, in that it is uh it's a combination of things for, for starters uh, we didn't really mostly write this down uh because you know home cooking was the the is something that only women did uh, uh and then they didn't have access to education till pretty much a couple of generations ago uh, we don't have so th- th- therefore you know we know exactly what recipes were in 18th century britain you know uh, mm-hmm. wasn't a great cuisine by any sense but we still have detailed recipes right but right. there's nothing there's nothing here uh, nothing's been written down here um, and so there is a certain sense of not having written down a lot of these things as well um and so uh, a lot of this uh, tacit knowledge uh, is fundamentally about the fact that uh, it's sometimes calling it an art is an excuse for the patriarchy to sort of keep women in the kitchen no 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 only you have you can make this i can't do this you know uh right. sort of this thing um, and i think uh, that's not true uh, a lot of that stuff if you really observe uh, what our grandmothers do is often grounded in practical science simply because that tacit wisdom has been passed on for generations and generations and it works they may not know the thermodynamics of why it works but it works uh, and i think my uh, my attempt was to say you know what if i can explain the science of it uh, then it's easier for people to understand and to to sort of you know try it themselves uh, and not worry about uh, uh the fact that they need you know years and years of experience in order to get right yeah so um the other thing that kind of flows from that is that um it sounds very much like you know there's there's a specific chapter about recipes later on in the book which i'll get to but it sounds also that you feel that um i mean this is a kind of a complex thing that recipes just don't 
I mean, reading a recipe is just not going to cut it. We have many recipe books for yes. Indian cooking. Yes. Um, but not, nothing like quite what you have attempted. So, you know, yeah. just explain that a bit. Why, why does a recipe just not cut it? See, uh, because the problem is that we, when we cook at home, and I, 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 and I keep making this distinction between cooking in a restaurant or an industrial sort of cooking or making a consumer f- you know, food product, where, yes, you, you actually need ultra-precise recipes, uh, you need to do exactly the same thing every time to get the same output and so on. Uh, but cooking at home is is fundamentally a day-to-day optimization problem. So you you look at what you have, you look at what's in your fridge, you have to kind of balance the dietary restrictions in your home. The kid won't eat this, the old man won't eat too salty food, and you know this person is diabetic. Uh, and so it's a continuous optimization problem uh, and seasonal availability of things and so on. And you kind of put things together, right? Um, when a recipe calls for, say, nutmeg powder, you're not going to go to the stop, buy nutmeg and, and, and use that in your dish. You're simply going to say, you know what, nutmeg, I, I have cinnamon, I'm just going to use that, right? Close enough, right? Uh, and so essentially, a lot, of, a lot of practical cooking is about interpreting recipes as what are the broader modular steps in this, right? So see, Indian cooking fundamentally is about first and foremost, getting spice flavors into oil, some kind of oil. It could be ghee, it could be... Uh, in Punjab, it could be mm. groundnut oil in uh, anywhere else. It could be sesame oil in Tamil Nadu, coconut oil in uh, Kerala, and you know mustard oil in, in Bengal. It's fundamentally about getting a combination of regionally appropriate spices into the flavors of those dissolved into oil. That's the fundamental flavor of your dish. After that, what you do is completely immaterial. Whether you add dal, whether you add vegetables or meat or seafood, uh, all mm. you then do is you kind of have a rough sense of, look, vegetables cook at this temperature sort of 70 celsius needs a little bit more cooking meat cooks very quickly and can overcook uh, red meat takes a lot more time to cook so you know etc and if it's seafood it has to be very delicately cooked uh, and so on right so and that's fun and then it's about estimation of salt um, and then another layer of flavor where you do a tarka and all of that so if you right. really look at the subcontinent there's a certain standard modular template to how we think about uh, at least our main courses. And we're not even talking about starters and you know snacks and street food. Mm, That's an mm, entirely mm. different universe. But home cooking is fundamentally this. It's never about rigidity to a recipe at all. right? So right. I, in our heads, it's always been algorithms. Uh, but it's just that nobody's bothered to say, hey, here's an algorithm for dal. Right? So it doesn't mm. give you one dal, but it gives you, you know, hey, here's you know, 20 ways of you know making dal. So that's essentially how we think as well. Right. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. I think we'll pick up on the kind of uh, recipe algorithm in a bit. Um, but let's just sort of get into some the, the meat of the book a little bit. Um, there are You sort of start with the basics, the fundamentals of Indian cooking. And um, I kind of, you know, which is the chapter that you, you, would so, you would sort of say is really important? The couple stood out to me. One is sort of, you know, heat, the transmission of heat yeah, to yeah. foods. Yeah. So pressure cooking. Yeah. But I thought I'll, um, you know, you sort of write with great um, with this great sense of care and you know uh, affection almost for this uh, this process of browning in Indian food so yes. what you call the Maillard process Maillard reaction, uh, reaction yes Maillard reaction yes, uh, yes. sort of process of browning yeah. onion and garlic so yes. maybe for the purposes of this podcast you can just sort of talk about that what is it like to write that uh, what has been your experience of you know breaking down that process yeah I, it was uh, uh, i think it was uh, the the chapter on browning was the most enjoyable one to write right uh, the first chapter was the hardest one to write and it took the longest amount of time it's it's also the mm-hmm. longest chapter um, and it was particularly hard because i had to uh, figure out how much to cover and what not to cover and what are the mm. absolute basics and and more importantly uh, you know it's one thing for me to say hey, show off my knowledge of say laws of thermodynamics 
Uh, that's mm. not useful for the reader. Can I just break it down to the point of what is it about thermodynamics that you have to understand so that you right. know why metal works differently or why aluminium works differently from copper, which works differently from say stainless steel, or why cooking something in water is different from cooking something in fat or or in an oven and so on. So to that degree, you know, just giving them that kind of knowledge. So I think that was the most challenging chapter, right? But clearly, the onion was was obviously my my favorite because I think as a uh, if there's like one one thing that beginner cooks. Uh, can learn mm. in order to make their dishes more delicious just focus on browning and 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 you will significantly improve uh by a huge margin like all other improvements will be incremental but this will be a big improvement right. because i think uh, see what happens is that uh, almost all foods anything that has both carbohydrates and proteins uh browns at high temperatures above the boiling point of water so that's the interesting mm. thing so the challenge here is that most food is fully water right you know like even a carrot is like 88% water right a uh, potato is like 80% water uh, and a lot of cooking also happens in water so so the interesting thing is that browning only happens when there is no surface water right so it can only happen in oil or it can happen in a, when you're sauteing it on a hot pan and and your food is directly in contact with it or it can happen in an oven when again you are applying a high high temperature for a sustained period of time so on right uh, so it that reaction again the thing is that it happens in the narrow range after which you're burning okay so hmm. it's it's also delicate that you can very easily burn onion if you don't pay attention but yet it takes 15 20 minutes for it to get to the stage where it starts browning so right. you know that's the so that's why that patience uh, and the thing is is often uh, really really important but once you brown onions the taste of those onions is just something else right um and i think if you make something like a chana masala uh, you really wait for the onions to brown and then you make the dish you'll actually find that you won't need to add that many other powdered masalas just the amount of flavor that you get from the browned onion uh, mm. is central if you go to like old delhi right so that the one guy will be for 45 minutes he'll just be slowly and carefully just browning onions at the start of the day and then they add the chana and then by the way the chana cooks like the whole day at a very very low flame Um, mm. And so you order any chole kulche. That's the chana you're eating, and it just you know, the taste gets better with you know, every day and so on. So browning reactions, and and, and you can apply it to anything, right? So the, the so the trick here is that if you're making like a mixed vegetable dish, never cook the vegetables in the water. Always sauté the vegetables separately. Let them get brown, then add them to the gravy at the end. So you get both crunch, um, and you also get the tremendous browning flavors that 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 get added to. Uh, uh the uh, uh to the vegetables themselves right so it's a, it's i think it's the most important reaction uh and i often you know the fascinating thing is that uh you know when we go out into the sun right or when we as we age right the the mm. proteins in our body undergo a very slow version of the maillard reaction to get browner and also therefore more dysfunctional as we age so the interesting metaphor is that the maillard the slow slow motion version of the maillard reaction is happening in our body to the proteins in our body as we age uh and yet it's the same reaction that actually causes the astonishing flavors that you get in food so that's an interesting uh, you know just a position there right yeah and you know the chapter that follows that or perhaps soon after that is on spices which again is a very yeah. detailed you yes. do it in charts and it's it's fascinating yeah. but you also have an interesting take on spices in which you say that it's basically you know if i am to sort of simplify it and paraphrase it's it's, it's just something to be added later you need to focus yeah. on the yes uh the browning of the onions and garlic exactly. and the other things exactly. first you yeah. just add the spices later so it's uh, powdered spices yeah. powdered spices actually um mm. need to be added only at the end with the right. exception of turmeric and chili powder which by the way you know, they they don't lose aroma or taste with cooking mm. every mm. other spice because they don't dissolve in water and most of your dishes will be gravies uh they will tend to lose aroma the longer you cook them 
So the mm. option is either you can add like a ton of spices ahead of time, or you can mm. add like a tiny amount at the end. The effect is the same. So that's I think you know, right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Uh, so and a couple of other things that you do is um, you know when you're writing a book about science and cooking, you're busting a lot of myths. Um, some of them, you know, I know what readers will be thinking, which is uh, Krish Ashok. I really like cooking, but uh, why are you making it so hard for me to be a hipster? Uh, and, <laughs> you know, so um, so you know, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna ask some sure. some 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 sort of basic stuff um, that uh, things that I have come across. Um, sure, and then you can you can perhaps address. Uh, so the one thing is Himalayan pink salt. Uh, <laughs> So what is what's so the deal I, with Himalayan so, pink so salt? So let's let's first use the correct name. Um, right. So it's it's Pakistani pink salt for starters. Um, okay. All, all, all the all the pink salt in the world comes from one mine in Punjab in Pakistan, right? Kewra mm-hmm. Mine is the name of the uh, the place. All pink salt comes from that one mine. That's it. There's no it's no other way. Um, and because it can't be sold as you know sourced in Pakistan pink salt, uh, Indian you know uh, companies buy it from. Uh, traders who buy it from China, so Chinese traders who buy it from China. So we actually buy it from the Chinese, um, mm. and then we sort of rebrand it as Himalayan pink salt. I mean, it's not even in Himalayas. Actually, it's very much in the plates, but it's branded mm. as Himalayas because I know you know Indians like to buy that. Uh, so the second thing there uh, is that uh, the nutritional benefits and all of that, eighty-four additional minerals, um, mm. all of that is complete nonsense. Again, <laughs> it's marketing. Um, uh, again, this is very simple sort of think think in terms of statistics, right? Uh, so think about. Think about how much food you eat, or how much food you make when you cook a dish. Rough estimate mm. is that I've generally seen that it's about 500 grams or 700 grams, depending for a small family, right? So you kind of, you know, a dish, a gravy dish, uh, is about 500 grams or 700 grams. Let's assume 500 grams. You know, that's okay. 500, you know, uh, uh, milliliters of you know gravy or whatever it is, right? Um, then you know, in that, typically the percentage of salt that is considered for Indian taste to be acceptably salted is about between one to two percent, right? One point five to two percent. Uh, that's, by the mm. way, a good way to estimate or not to not oversalt. So if you kind of know the weight of what you're cooking, then you can just measure out two two percent salt and you'll be good. Okay. So that's a, that's another thing that I sort of talk about in the the flavor the spices chapter as well. The interesting thing is is that two percent of that five hundred grams is is really just like ten grams. Okay. So it's it's a very tiny amount of that. And think mm. about it, ninety nine point nine five percent of that pink salt is just sodium chloride, which is just you same as everything all other salt. That last 0.05% is all these 84 other minerals. Okay. So right. in 10 grams, how many grams of that are you getting? And so therefore, it's actually like homeopathy. It's completely, you're not getting anything. It is so <laughs> diluted that if it has any effects at all, you're not getting it. It's just so diluted. Your tap water will have more of those minerals than your Himalayan pig salt. Okay. Right, so, right. so therefore, it's just that sometimes people don't realize that a lot of this marketing is it's just marketing. Right. Okay. So with uh, the other thing I want to ask you that I've read a lot about recently is uh, cast iron cookware. Cast iron cookware. Right. Uh, right, right. Right. So, so uh, yeah. Go so ahead. So cast iron cookware is uh, is 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 a is is an interesting thing. So uh, for certain kinds of uh, uh, for certain kinds of cooking, it's very tremendously versatile, uh, but it can also be high maintenance. So if you're someone who is really into cooking um, and you kind of uh, know how to season cast iron, then I think you should always have one because uh, it's a very versatile one. Uh, and it kind of, uh, so the, you don't need to have a, a nonstick uh, thing, which is again risky because the nonstick layer peels off. 
you know mm. if you overheat it and so on and that 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 peeled non stick layer is not good for you health wise right so teflon is not good for you and so on so uh, but the the closest thing to a non stick is actually seasoned cast iron so especially if you cook eggs or anything that you don't want to stick to the pan uh, seasoned cast iron is your best bet um, it will it will stick to everything else aluminium or copper or uh, or stainless steel which is the stickiest of the lot right so cast iron the other thing is that cast iron also retains a tremendous amount of heat so uh, once you heat it and switch it off it will still retain heat which is another useful thing for certain kinds of gravy dishes uh, and so on right but if you do not know how to season cast iron or if you uh, don't season it properly etc and if you're cooking anything acidic which is which means anything with tomatoes anything with yogurt anything which is acidic or sour in nature uh, that acid will leach the iron into your dish and your dish will taste taste metallic it's not poisonous or anything it's just iron uh, but it won't taste good um, and so so i think you know that's that's the only thing that people have to be wary of uh, when you when you when you when you use cast iron that you should know how to season it and you should make sure that you don't lose the seasoning uh, by using sort of heavy uh, metal sort of uh, ladles and sort of remove the seasoning layer right so that's that's basically what cast iron is right so uh, the third the third point i had with this is the, you have an entire chapter on um, Oh, uh, not an entire chapter, but you spend quite a lot of, lot of time talking about microwaves. Yes. Um, microwaves, I think, like especially um, in hipster cooking terms, gets a bad rep. It's not <laughs> supposed to be good. Uh, but in fact, you talk about other things that you can do with microwaves, yep. um, which is interesting. You think you think that's a very underrated uh, thing? Very much. It's very underutilized in India. Uh, we right. literally only use it to reheat samosas or reheat some, <laughs> you know, old yesterday's food and so on. uh but no it's actually a tremendously useful um uh, we are very efficient and very quick and clean way like uh, of doing mm. many things um especially if you are like especially if you're living like alone if it's a small one person or that you can even make rice in microwave very very convenient uh you can right. boil potatoes um you you can dry herbs uh, uh like you know something like curry leaves and all of that like goes bad very quickly even if you store it in the fridge so mm. if you can dehydrate them make them into a powder then you can use them like for a much 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 longer time right um and it's a very very um and the common misconception is that people sort of think it's radiation it's it's you know it's so you know by the, the term radiation is like how people use the term chemicals or oh, this food has chemicals if you don't want to eat chemicals then you should stop because everything is ke- chemicals at the end of the day right so you know mm-hmm. for some reason sodium chloride is okay but sodium bicarbonate is not okay So right. what is baking soda which is considered a chemical but sodium chloride is salt which is not a chemical apparently but i can is the same thing with radiation right your sunlight is radiation uh, mm. the most harmful form of radiation you'll encounter in your life is sunlight right the right. one most likely to cause you cancer is sunlight uh, the tons of ultraviolet uh, component of that sunlight is is what is harmful and by the way the amount of energy in microwave is much less than visible light meaning that if you place your dish outside in in the sunlight um it is actually there's it is being impar- in, impacted by more radiation than what it is um uh, in the context of the microwave the only reason it cooks in the microwave is because of a very interesting physics trick where microwave happens to heat water alone and nothing else and since most food is water and it only heats up water so the food fo- dish actually cooks from the inside uh because the water heats up inside and then you know uh, it cooks it heats up all the things around it right so it's it in fact one of the most efficient ways to cook uh and so th- that is why i think you know people should use it a lot more okay fine right so um i thought we'll um, just to sort of give our listeners an idea of you know they can read the book uh, but also just to see how uh, the process of how you think about food how you break down food thing i thought i could ask you was um, you know a lot of people 
uh, experiment with salads. A lot of people are into healthy food. Yes. And, um, you know, you write a lot about uh, base flavors, acidic flavors. Yeah. Um, how do you sort of use that information to sort of say, yeah. I want to make a salad that really pops, you know, yeah. has that zing to it. Oh, yeah. Um, how would you approach this? Yeah. The simplest metaphor for a fantastic salad is, mm. it's going to be slightly odd. We've, we've all had chart. You've had chart, right? Right. Chart is a salad. Think about it that way. Okay. Mm. And it's fantastically tasty, right? Why is it fantastically tasty? Because it has textural variation. It has mm. crunch. It has soft textures. It has fresh vegetables. Uh, and it has a sour component. It has a sweet component. It has a hot uh, component. And it has multiple levels of sour. There's like tomatoes, there's tamarind, there's the raw mango, and then there is uh, the lime juice squeezed at the end, and there are herbs, right? So, you know, most people, when, when I tell them that chaat is actually a salad, they say, no, of course it's not a salad, it's not healthy. Well, you know, uh, of course, the fact that they're using these fried puri and all those other ingredients may make it unhealthy. Nothing stopping you from making a chaat, except just don't use the puri, but use vegetables instead. And mm-hmm. you know, so that's actually a fantastic way to think about how to make a, a salad more interesting, right? So you do need uh, textural variations between the components, right? And again, there is no rule that that says that you have to have only raw ingredients. You can have cooked ingredients. By the way, so if you want to add protein, uh, cooked uh, legumes like dal, chana, you know, beans, uh, green moong, uh, soybeans, any of those things that, that are cooked can also be added, like groundnuts, uh, cooked groundnuts and so on, right? All of those can also go into adding sort of a, a bit more of a carbohydrates and, and proteins into your, into your salad, right? Um, then the, you can add a little bit more richness by adding variations of cheese, like feta cheese uh, is salty and sour. Fantastic addition to, to make a, a, a salad more interesting, right? And then, you know, then comes the dressing. So the dressing is the real, the formula for a dressing is that it's it's essentially uh, two parts fat, one part acid, and then other things, right? Salt and mm. sweet and sour and all those other things up to you, entirely up to you. So you can just, you can actually, so let's say you can make a chetinard style dressing by taking sesame oil, right? Uh, and then adding uh, tamarind, right? Mm. As the as the acid, uh, tamarind paste is the acid. And then add fennel, curry leaves, garlic, and chilies. And blend the whole thing. You'll actually get a salad that tastes of chetinard food, right? So you know, right. the, the thing is that it's, it's just, you know, in, Indian food is one of those things where we infinitely adapt uh, external influences into us, you know, fantastically well. So, you know, street food, you see, there's a Szechuan dosa. We put paneer makhani pizza uh, and we make our own like naan tacos. Uh, and so we're fantastic at doing that. And I think, you know, sometimes, but people at home seem to have this very odd idea of authenticity and, no, oh, no, I should not do this. And salad has to be this dull, boring mix of just raw vegetables. No, you can actually make it as interesting as you want. Right. Just by keeping these kind of principles in mind as to what makes a good dressing. Yep. And that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think this is a really good segue into bringing us to, as I mentioned, the the last part of your book, which is, you know, aptly called Burn the Recipe, um, where you kind of sort of extend this concept to say, you know, don't just follow these rigid recipes. In fact, you you are kind of actually, you know, the culmination of the book is trying to make this kind of algorithm where you just, yeah. you know, you can you can generate your own recipe. You just, you just have to keep some basics in mind. Yeah. Um, so is that is that your approach to cooking? And sort Absolutely. of how long did it take you to sort of get to this point where you could just say, you know, this is just how you could approach it? I I, in, uh, I don't think, honestly, I don't think it takes long. Um, hmm. it, it, the, the point is that if you actually, let's, for instance, if you grew up being sort of mentored by a person who's a better cook at home, right? 
Mm. As most women in India tend to be mentored by their mothers, grandmothers, and so on, uh, I, they pick up these skills very early in terms of you know making do with what you have, as opposed to some kind of rigid adherence to a recipe and so on. Right? It's just that beginner, first-time cooks, they some they wrongly believe that recipes are where you start and and mm. and end. Right? Um, and that I think is is a stressful unlearning that you have to do. And so, honestly speaking, I think it. Uh, uh i would actually you know i would venture to say that uh if you are experimental and if you maybe you have like understanding spouses and you know roommates and others so your <laughs> experiments occasionally they will fail uh i i think a couple of months is what it needs for you to break this habit out of recipes and just really start experimenting right uh, and think of your cooking in terms of what am i doing what am i doing in terms of adding flavor to oil what am i doing in terms of prepping ingredients be it meat vegetables you know whatever it is and what am i doing to finish the dish and how am i using acids to make it interesting so literally just four things right if you can kind of work your way around that and then you can literally make anything then you'll experiment by first and foremost uh, uh replacing ingredients that you don't have right replacing mm-hmm. spices that you don't have uh, and so on right? so it's just that i th- i don't think it takes too long right and so basically i mean supposing i mean lots of people as you say are experimenting with cooking especially during this pandemic lockdown time that we've all been through and so i guess what is the the kind of benefit of having this kind of approach to thinking about it is that it's not too much of a jump to say i want to make something in bengali style right. so it's, yeah then it's just you know how would you go about it with your approach it's just a question of exactly right so again as i said i think people sometimes get offended um if i if i call some of my you know uh, something that i just concocted at home bengali because it doesn't you know sort of meet some strict definition of some recipe that somebody has in their family and so on but mm-hmm. the idea of authenticity in food is actually quite patently silly right everything mm-hmm. is auth- is as authentic as is what you make at home right and even within a within a region no two homes have the same recipes right so no mm-hmm. two biryanis are the same no two pulao's are the same no two rasams or sambars are the same right um mm. you know i've had people sometimes uh, tell me that my mother's rasam is not authentic uh, because she uses ginger i don't know why right. she uses ginger because she's just she's used to using ginger he's had a mother use ginger that's it but mm. for some people no 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 rasam should not have ginger it should only have pepper and something else <laughs> is is i think uh, uh, so you know people kind of get stuck up in that right but i'm saying that look you look at these patterns you look at data you can kind of sense that there are broad patterns about what makes something taste bengali and that is the use of mustard oil and the characteristic bengali spices that's what makes bengali food bengali right um it's it's nothing else they use the same vegetables they use the same uh, seafood or fish that you know that we use anywhere else it's it's that's what makes the flavor difference for most part um and again also pref- cultural preferences to whether you like it slightly on the sour side or do you like it slightly on the sweet side or if you like it on the hot side right so you can say that andhra is biased towards hot uh tamil nadu is biased towards sour uh bengal and uh, gujarat are biased towards sweet right but it's mm. a balance it doesn't mean that they don't use chilies is that there's a little bit more sugar than you know something else right so and also what we have to remember that how we perceive flavor is a very individual recognition of nostalgia right so how yeah. we remember smells and aroma and taste in general is that we form uh, the the part of the brain that deals with flavor is the same part of the brain that deals with nostalgia right uh, mm. and so what happens is that if if i grow up eating dosa every day right those flavor memories and the texture memories and the flavor memories and the aroma uh, and the level of say you know the sourness and the batter and all of that is stored in my memory uh, the the younger you do it and the harder it is to sort of eliminate and you kind of therefore every dosa that you eat is being compared against that right um, and so what happens is that you can it the longer you get eat only one kind of food 
the harder it is to actually for, uh, help uh, have you appreciate other ways of doing the same thing right which is why sometimes people find that uh, they cannot say like mexican food or they how can japanese eat raw fish or how can you know europeans eat bland food it's just that your taste memories don't have uh, you don't have that nostalgia of it right so, so that's why somebody in bombay can enjoy a szechuan dosa or a maggi stuffed dosa and people get outraged saying that how can they do that i said no that person does not have memory of eating dosa the way you do and for mm. him the novelty is what is interesting and so they find it interesting it's perfectly fine it's delicious for them right you have no right to say that something should not be delicious to someone else it's i think spated recently uh, so if you think about a bengali dish as long as i use mustard oil uh, and i use punch four you know fennel uh, radhuni uh, your uh, nigella uh, fenugreek and mustard right uh these five things with mustard oil will make anything taste bengali uh, for for the most part right uh, and i think you know at the end of the day then you know opens up your ability to experience various kinds of flavors uh, and, and you're not just eating the same you know if you're if you're sitting in tamil nadu you'll be eating sambar rasam and a few things you know day in and day out it'll expand your palate i mean you'll learn to appreciate other flavors uh, and i think you know that's and that's always a good thing right So um you know given that we are sort of running out of time a little bit i think we'll sort of end with a couple of quick questions um so um some i mean i don't want to give away too much of the book but um we're trying to encourage people to read it as well um but a couple let's just sort of go over um you know maybe you could outline a couple two or three things that um you have discovered in your cooking and in your approach to cooking uh, some ingredients that people may not think about typically adding to their food in indian or having around in your in their kitchens yeah. but that you have found very useful yeah. i think the the first one is uh, i'll sort of go with the uh, the, the most uh, one of the most game changing things that i kind of discovered again as a result of obviously reading and discovering what other people do in other cuisines is is the idea of brining meat uh, which i think mm. is is uh, is game changing right mm. if you brine your meat ahead of marination Mm. marination happens in an acid like a yogurt and you know uh, oil and spices right so ostensibly the people think it's because you need the spice flavors to go inside the meat spice flavors do not go inside the meat they only stick to the surface that's what they do salt goes inside and so if you brine your meat ahead uh, one the salt goes inside it makes the meat taste better two the salt prevents moisture loss when it's cooking so your meat stays tender and for chicken it this is just game changing right i think you know for anyone who's cooking chicken please start brining your meat it's just put the chicken in uh, in 8% salt water for an hour not longer because then it'll get over salty then mm. wash off the salt uh, and then do whatever you want with it right uh, you marinate it you cook it and it's perfectly fine so i think that's number one uh, i think the second thing was that uh, second really really fascinating thing and again not too hard to do at all right is is fermentation Okay. Uh, people i think uh, uh, are afraid to do fermentation fermentation right so it's it, it, they get scary right is that mm. you know you know uh, i'm letting some fungi and bacteria do things to my food i don't know <laughs> whether it's going to be poison poisonous after that and so on uh, and so but there's nothing to be worried about right so uh, lacto fermentation essentially is utilizing lactobacteria that's everywhere uh, to do magical things with your food right let's be let's be so the best human chef has nothing on the cooking capabilities of lactobacteria because they can extract flavor molecules by breaking down starches and proteins in in your ingredients in a way that you can never do in a cooking pan right so fermentation is not just to turn milk into yogurt which is good if you if you do that i think you'll get fantastic yogurt i think that's a separate uh, thing but 
uh, it's not just about say making idli right so which is again fermentation of urad dal and rice to make a fermented batter that you can then use to make idli you can ferment anything as long as you put it in a 2% salt solution right just water 2% salt add carrots add radish add tomatoes add whatever cucumbers and some will take only 2 3 days some will take a week some may take 2 3 weeks just leave it out at room temperature and trust me you will think it's actually getting spoiled it's not because there's enough salt in it to not allow any bacteria other than lactobacteria and it will turn whatever it is you're making into a lovely beautiful sour high flavor version of whatever right. it is you you originally put in and which by the way you can just eat it's probiotic it's tremendously healthy lot more nutrition than the raw vegetable itself and the liquid in which you are soaking that is laden with probiotics and glutamates and umami think of it as liquid msg basically okay store that in your fridge and just when you're making any gravy instead of adding salt add a little bit of that liquid trust me it's game changing it is just amazing it'll have a little bit of the flavor of whatever it is you fermented but tremendous depth and sophistication of flavor so lactoferment liquid is my second you know big thing and that's simple to do it's just you just have to you know put it in your kitchen and wait for 2 3 days and just use that water that's it right, uh, right. the third thing um, the third thing i would say is is um, vegetable peels right so mm. if you understand the botany of vegetables all of the uh, most of the nutrition and most of the flavor lies just under the skin okay mm. that's why even when you eat mangoes right the, the tastiest part of the mango is just 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 under the peel Right. right uh the sweetest part of one and that's true of literally every vegetables you know, even onions right so the outer peel that we tend to discard is the most flavorful right but unfortunately it's papery and dry and you know we can't use it in our cooking never throw them away right uh what you do is at the end of the week take this giant you know the largest vessel you have whatever you bake biryani in or something fill it with water like you know one or four or five liters of water drop all these vegetable peels in okay uh you know store the peels in the fridge and then take them out on the weekend just the boil it away for 2 3 hours right and then discard mm-hmm. the stuff you will be left with a fantastic vegetable broth or a or a or a stock instead of water use that when you cook or when you make soups or if you make whatever else it will just be insanely flavorful right yeah, restaurants do that great. restaurants never throw away vegetable peels at all they make stock with it that's why restaurant food tends to taste so much more intense right so they they don't waste any bit of thing and i think as indians as some famously as people who don't like to waste things it's insane how much of the part of the vegetables we actually waste i think you should do that wow okay all of that sounded insanely useful so thank you for that uh, last thing is i mean i should have asked you this earlier what is your favorite thing to cook what do, what do you enjoy making the most i i it keeps changing so i sort of you know uh, i like constantly experimenting so every few months or something there'll always be something new uh Uh, that I'm obsessed with so it, it used to be mexican food about a year or so ago i was like crazy about uh, mexican food and, and particularly it's it's also sometimes hard to make mexican food because their flavor profiles depend on specifically mexican chilies of which there are 200 varieties and a lot <laughs> of their flavor actually comes from them in india we like get like one variety of chili um but i you know often i i, I used to uh, when i was traveling i used to get those seeds from mexico and i used to plant them here like i still grow habanero chilies in my terrace and so on uh, so mexican food is is obviously used to be one of my favorite and that i sort of get op- obsessed with thai food so i was making a lot of thai food i think there's a certain minimalism and i think the sense of balance of sea sweet sour hot uh, creamy mm. uh, fresh raw uh, uh, fresh versus cooked you know that balance is just perfect in thai food right 
Uh, and I think it's uh, and a lot of the spices are very similar to Indian food, so nothing new there. And then the flavors of the lemongrass and all of that is really nice. Uh, and plus, I have lemongrass growing on the terrace, so I particularly like you know using it in Thai food. Uh, but my recent favorite, as a result of watching some uh, a TV series on Netflix and so on, is is Korean food. Um, uh, Korean okay. food, I think, super minimalist. Uh, uh-huh. And the best part is that uh, it, it, all Korean food seems to cook only at, at the dinner table. It's like it's not bought, cooked, and bought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everything yeah. cooks right on the table, right? So, uh, and so it's always hot, and I love that fact. And and again, it's very inventive. They use a lot of you know off-the-shelf ingredients uh, and sauces and others that makes it very easy to put together. Very strong, bold flavors, uh, and so that's been my recent thing. So, I've been making uh, Korean dishes that I see on these uh, K dramas, uh, and I watch once in a while. Right. Okay. We'll end it on that note. Um, as I said, I have so many more questions, but uh, I think we'll have to wrap it up there. Uh, congratulations once again on the book. Um, I found it fascinating and and very useful. I'm sure many other readers will as well. And thank you so much for joining us on the Hindus on Books podcast today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindus podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 